And so it's a blessing to be here this morning. We are jumping back into this series in uh, the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open with me uh, to John's Gospel today. I think the verses will probably be on the screen as well. You have been uh, in taking a break, I think, over the last five weeks in a series called The Gifts of Grace. And uh, because you've taken that break, I want to just uh, give a little bit of a background as we're jumping into John chapter 7. I want to give a little bit of a background on, on where John has taken us over the first six chapters of, of John's gospel. And so in chapter 1, we see that John just opens, he comes right out of the gate with this incredible declaration that Jesus is the creator God, that Jesus is the word, that eternal word that preexisted from all eternity past, and that he is the one by which the worlds were created. He begins with this incredible statement, I think, I think one of the, the most powerful and, 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 and packed statements in all of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on to say that all things were created through Him, and that without Him, nothing was made that was made. You were created by God. You and I were created through this eternal word, through Jesus Christ. We, we didn't arrive here by some random accident. I know they teach something different in the public schools today, but the word of God says that we're not accidents. We're, we're not the result of time and chance acting on matter. We're the result of the, the predetermined plan of God. And God brought us into existence. God formed and fashioned us in our mother's womb. And then he goes on to say that, that Jesus is that word become flesh and dwelt among us. And so he begins right out of the gate that, that Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator God. In John chapter 1, he also tells us the story of John the Baptist who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the question is, the question arises, how, how, what is God doing? Why would God become a man? You know, if you were up in heaven, enthroned and, and, and sitting as the king of the universe with, with, with the hosts of heaven worshiping you and hallowing your name 24-7, why would God leave that? Why would God set that aside to, to take on human form? with all of the frailties, with, with all of the, the weaknesses that we all endure as human beings, with all of the, the pain, the heartache, the suffering that comes with the human experience, why would God leave that to come here? And John tells us the reason why is because he's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. And as the story unfolds, it, it unfolds how it is that Jesus is doing this. In John chapter 2, we see that Jesus performs his first miracle. He turns water into wine. He visits a wedding. They run out of wine, and, and Jesus obeys his mother. He's a good son. He listened to his mother. He, 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 he helped them at this wedding, and, and he turned water into wine. And, and John writes for us that through this miracle, he was manifesting his glory. He was showing that he, who he was. He was showing that he was the one 
who had power even over creation as he was able to turn the water into wine. Also in John chapter 2, we see that Jesus cleanses the temple, that, that worship in his day had been corrupted. Worship in his day had turned into a profit-earning enterprise. That there were some very bad people who had infiltrated the, the worship, they had infiltrated the temple system, who did not believe in the scriptures. And they were using God to profit themselves. And Jesus goes in and he, he cleans out the temple, reinstituting faithful worship. And so through his miracle, he manifests his glory. Through this cleansing of the temple, he manifests his authority over the religious system of the day. In John chapter 3, we see Nicodemus comes and meets with him. Nicodemus was a religious ruler. He was part of the inside. He was, he was part of this, this group. And, and, and we see that Nicodemus, though, though the, the majority of this religious group he was a part of, though the majority of the Pharisees were not true believers, that Nicodemus was. And so he, he, he stands out among his peers and so he, he comes and he visits with Jesus at night and Jesus tells him that for him to enter into the kingdom of God, for him to be born, to, for him to see the kingdom of God, that he must be born again. Nicodemus is very confused by this. He says, how am I going to do this? Do I go back into my mother's womb? How, do I, how am I to be born again? And Jesus says it, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the one who, who transforms our hearts, who, who regenerates us. The, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we receive eternal life as we believe upon the Son of God, as we believe upon Christ. In John chapter 4, he, he moves from the, an insider, a, a religious ruler, and he moves out to the, to the fringes of their society and he meets with the Samaritan woman. And he essentially tells her the same thing. He uses different words. But he says, you must drink of the living water to satisfy the, the longing of your soul, to satisfy your thirst. In chapter 5, he, he healed a lame man, a man who had been lame since birth. And this was a wonderful thing, a thing worth celebrating the problem was that he healed, it, he healed a lame man on the Sabbath day, and he did it in Jerusalem, the, the center of where God's people worshipped. And so when the religious rulers saw that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath day, they became very upset because doing any work according to their definition of work was, was forbidden. And so Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, and this, this puts him at odds with the religious establishment. Not only had he gone in and cleansed out their temple, not only is he telling them that they must be born again, but now he is healing on the Sabbath day. And they enter into this conflict. Jesus and the religious rulers in, in John chapter 5, this conflict arises and Jesus tells them plainly that the word of God is not in you, though you know it. Though it's in your head, though you've memorized it, it's not in your heart. It's not abiding in you. It's not living in you. 
What an astonishing statement to tell the theologians, to tell the professors, to tell the priests, to, to tell the religious leaders of his day that you don't have the word of God in you. But he didn't just stop there. He, he even went further in John chapter 5. He said, not only do you not have the word of God in you, you also don't have the love of God in you. And so Jesus sets his crosshairs on, on these people that have perverted worship, who have hijacked God's word, who are using it to oppress people and to enrich themselves. He says, there is no, the word of God is not in you and the love of God is not in you. And from that time on, Jesus, he, he leaves uh, Jerusalem, he leaves that region because they want to kill him. They begin to plot, they begin to, to plan, they begin to, to devise schemes on how can we get rid of this Jesus because he's a threat to us. He's a threat to our power. He's a, he's a threat to our wealth. He's a, he's a threat to our status quo. And so Jesus leaves that region and he goes back to the region of the Sea of Galilee. And in John chapter 6 on the Sea of Galilee, you remember the great miracle that he performed. He fed 5,000 men with a little boy's sack lunch. He feeds the multitudes. This incredible miracle. And when the multitudes see what Jesus did, the Bible says that they took him and they wanted to take him and they wanted to seize him and make them their king on the spot. Now that sounds like a pretty good plan. But Jesus, the Bible says, withdrew from them because that was not what he came to do. He didn't come to set up some sort of political empire that he would rule on, a, on an earthly throne. They thought, man, this guy can, he, he solved the food problem. He solved the distribution problem. He can feed us for life. We'll make him the king. And Jesus withdraws from them. And then later, as that story unfolds, that, that crowd, the next day, they look for him and they find him. And Jesus says, the only reason that you're looking for me is because I fed you. You, you don't believe in me. You don't believe in my words. You, you don't believe in who I am. You just want free stuff. You just want what I can give you, but you're really not interested in who I am. They said, well, you know, Moses, he fed us in the wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the one who has come down from heaven. And the bread I will give for the world is my flesh. That I will lay down my life. I will go to the cross. I will sacrifice myself for the salvation of the world. Jesus even said, you ate, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but you must be a partaker of my flesh and my blood to have God's life in you. That we must be partakers with him in the cross. And upon hearing this, the great multitudes that had been following him in John 6, 66, it says that they turned away from him. They said, we're, we're cool with the free stuff. We're, we'll follow you if you'll feed us and, and make us happy and, and say nice things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're here for that. But when you start putting demands upon us, 
about bearing our cross, about, about entering into death with you. No, we are, we're not here for that. And so the, all of the crowds, all of the followers, they forsake Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too, the 12? He says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter speaks up and he says, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You see, Jesus, with one message to, to the great crowds that had been following him, with one message, he, he divides this crowd. And there's a huge group, the vast majority say, we don't want that. But to a smaller group, the, the 12, they say, Jesus, this is the best message you've ever preached. This, this is, now you're getting to the good stuff. We want this word. And so here is Jesus. He's rejected by the religious establishment in Jerusalem. He's out in Galilee now, and the crowds have forsaken him. Only the 12 are left with him, and one of them is Judas Iscariot, who will later betray him. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 12. And this morning we're looking at uh, verses 1 through 13. And it reads, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. Now the Jews, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, it is through your word that you reveal the truth to us. Lord, in a world that is so confused about everything, your word is so clear about everything. It is that lamp that is shining in the darkness. It, it, is the, the, it is that light that shows us the difference between truth and lies, the difference between good and evil, the difference between righteousness and, and unrighteousness. It is your word that lights our path through this world. Lord, you've called us, you've drawn us to yourself, you've revealed your truth to us, you've revealed the truth about who you are to our hearts. 
Lord, through our time in your word, I pray that you would help us as your people to know how we ought to live, to, to know the way that we should walk, the courses that we should take. Lord, we're all from different backgrounds, different places, but what we have in common is you. You have, have brought us together as your people. Lord, as we leave here today, we, we go back out into the world to live distinctly, to, to, to not be a part of the world, but, but to, to, to live as, as, as your people in the world to bring you glory. I pray that through our time in your word today, you would help us. You would help us further that, that goal for our lives of bringing you glory. Lord, in every area, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships, in our parenting, in our careers, Lord, in our education, Lord, in our interaction with our neighbors, Lord, in every word, every thought, every deed, Lord, that you would be king and that you would be supreme and that we would glorify you. I pray that you would help us in our, in, to do that through your, our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've seen that this tension is building. This tension is building between Jesus and the crowds, between Jesus and the religious establishment. They have some ideas. They have some ideas of what the Messiah would be. The crowds want to make Jesus the king, and Jesus doesn't want to be that kind of king. We, we see the religious establishment that is threatened now because the crowds want to follow Jesus, and they don't want to follow them anymore. And this, Jesus is openly calling everybody out. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He'll offend the religious leaders. He'll offend Nicodemus. He'll offend the, the Samaritan woman at the well, the outcast of society. He, he is welcome and willing to tell everybody the truth because Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us enough to, to not only tell us what we want to hear, but to tell us what we need to hear. And so Jesus is, is, is stirring up conflict. There's incredible tension that's arising around him. There's this open hostility that's, that's boiling over. And again, we, we should be surprised. It, it should surprise us where this conflict is coming from. It's coming from the people that know the Bible the best. It's coming from the people that should have been able to say and spot, this is the Messiah. This is who Isaiah wrote about. This is who Jeremiah wrote about. This is who Malachi wrote about. This is who Moses wrote, wrote about. All of the prophets, all of the Old Testament pointing to, foreshadowing the Savior who would come and take away the sin of the world. These people knew the Old Testament front to back. They devoted their lives to studying the Scripture. Yet when that Scripture made flesh, when the Word made flesh, shows up in front of them because of their pride, because of their arrogance, because of their self-righteousness, they reject the one that is truly righteous. They, they begin to plot, they begin to, to scheme how they can get rid of Jesus. He's become a problem for them. He's become a, a problem for their movement. 
And here we see in chapter 7 that this conflict, it doesn't subside at all. In fact, it even begins to intensify. And from this passage this morning, I, I see that there are seven different perspectives that people have on who they think that Jesus is. Seven different thoughts, seven different perspectives. And now, you, you may have come in here today with, with all kinds of thoughts about Jesus. You may have come in here today not knowing anything about Jesus, not knowing anything about church. It may be your first time in church. And if that's you here today, we want to say welcome. We love you. We're glad you're here. We think you're in the right place today. You may be here today on, on the total opposite end of the spectrum. You may have been serving the Lord for 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 years. And if you have been, God bless you. I'm so happy for you. So even in this room, there's probably a multiplicity of perspectives on who Jesus is. Jesus undoubtedly is the most prominent figure in all of human history. Today, over 2 billion people claim to worship Jesus Christ as God. If you go into a college classroom, what you'll hear about the university and the professors talking about Jesus it will be a totally different perspective. If you, if you do a, a, a kind of a man-on-the-street kind of interview, just asking and polling people, you'll, you'll get all kinds of ideas on who Jesus is. And we see many of those ideas in our text this morning. And so I want to look at these seven ideas. I want to look at them briefly this morning. As I was coming in today, uh, Pastor Dom, he mentioned to me, he said, you know, I've got five kids. Uh, Sunday mornings are like my, are my date. I put all my kids in kids ministry and me and my wife, we have a date at church. So please take as much time on your seven points as possible. Because this is the only time we have in the week. He said, take 10 minutes, take 20 minutes per point. It'll be wonderful. I said, you might think that, but the guys grilling the burgers out there, I don't know if they'll appreciate that. So I, I do have seven perspectives I want to look at. I want to look at them briefly this morning, but I want to touch on them and draw them out for you because these aren't perspectives that were only in history. These are perspectives that are still alive and well, and well today. And so we, hear, we see the first one. The first one is in verse 1. It says that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. They were trying to get rid of him. He was a problem for them. And the reason why they were wanting to get rid of him, you'll find out as, as you move forward in John's gospel. And, and in chapter 11, they realize that if we don't get rid of him, the Romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation. He, he's going to come and he's going to, the, the Romans, we've got this sweetheart deal with them. We've got this sweetheart deal with the Romans. They're allowing us to have this position of power and this position of wealth. And Jesus is a threat to that. And if the, the crowd set up Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the King, the Romans are going to come and they're going to wipe the floor with us. They're going to get rid of our whole little system that we've got going. And we can't allow that to happen. And so really the... the the issue that the Jewish leadership are having with Jesus, it's not personal. It's political. It's about power. It's about prestige. It's about wealth. 
Jesus is an outsider to this Jewish system. We tend to think about it as being religious, but it wasn't only religious, it was also very political. Jesus is the outsider, and, and he, uh, you know, to use a modern term, he's a threat to drain the swamp. They're the swamp. And so they unite in opposition against Jesus. Even though there was even factions within this religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, there, were, there was different factions, but when it came to Jesus, they were united. This guy's a problem and he's got to go. He's disrupting the status quo. What you need to understand about the religious leadership, they were not misguided believers. They were not people who, who loved God and, and were serving God and they just misunderstood the Old Testament. No, they were not believers at all. They did not believe in God. They did not believe in God's word. They were using God's word for their own selfish ends. And Jesus himself says this. If, if you look at John chapter 5, just a few pages back in your Bible, John chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus, in this conflict, after he healed a man on the Sabbath day, they, they sort of had this back and forth. But in the midst of this back and forth, Jesus says this in John 544, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? They weren't living for God's glory. They were living for their own glory. They wanted to be made much of. They were egotistical. They were narcissistic. They didn't love. They didn't serve God. They used God for their own selfish means and end. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, this idea, this way of living, it didn't die off in the first century. There are still people today, so-called Christians even, even people in ministry who do not love God, who do not serve God, who do not love and serve God's people, but they're in it for themselves. They're in it to be made much of. They're in it for their name and their fame and not God's glory. It's the same today. And so Jesus addresses this. He says, you don't believe me because you're not living for the glory of God. Verse 45, he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have cast your hope. When he talks about Moses, he's talking about the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He says, I don't have to accuse you. It's not my word that, that has to bring accusation against you. You have Moses that you're falling short of. The first five books of the Bible that you're violating constantly. In verse 46, he says this, If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, these were not true believers who, who just misunderstood. No, these were people who were at their core opposed to God. 
How do we know this? Well, when God showed up in the flesh, they put him on a cross. They wanted to kill him, and eventually they did. Jesus makes it very clear that they did not believe the Old Testament, but were instead peddling religion for profit. And so Jesus has for these his most sharpest words of of critique, of criticism. So that's the first perspective. Those who wanted to kill Jesus, wanted to get rid of Jesus because he was a threat to their power. And let me tell you, that spirit is still alive and well today. There are those who are in positions of power, even within our own country, who Jesus, who the church is a threat to their power. Why? Because they can't control us. Because we serve another king and his name is Jesus. Amen. Our our hope is not in in who is in the Oval Office. Our hope is who's on the throne of heaven. Amen. Amen. And and that throne of heaven is on the org chart. It's above everything. It's above the, the Oval Office. It's above the Congress. It's above the Supreme Court. And so we recognize that power above all power. That name above every name. And so for those in our day who are hungry for power, who have an unsatiable appetite to control the masses, the church has always been a threat to that. We were a threat in the first century against Caesar because we would not declare that Caesar is Lord. Why? Because we declare that Jesus is Lord. And guess what? They can't even, they can't do anything to us. Because even when they persecute us to the point of death, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because death only ushers us into glory. So even the fear of death is removed, which makes the church, should make the church, the true church, the most bold, unstoppable force in the world because our king is the king of kings point number two i i'm i'm I'm, so far i'm i'm fulfilling dom's wish this morning so let's move on Uh, point number two point number two we see in verse five let's look at verses two through five so the jewish feast of booths was at hand this this feast of booths was a a harvest time uh, festival that uh, all of the, the, Jew, the Jewish people that were able to, to do so would travel to Jerusalem for this festival. A harvest festival, think about times like Thanksgiving. Uh, it was a time of celebration, celebrating the harvest that had come in, thanking God for his provision. They would live in temporary shelters. So it was kind of like, a, it was kind of like camping and Thanksgiving mix, which sounds pretty awesome to me. So they would live in these temporary shelters that was to remind them of God's provision as God took care of his people in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Jesus says, I'm not going up to this feast, but it says that his brothers, in verse 3, his brothers said to him, leave here, the Sea of Galilee, and go to Judea, go to Jerusalem, 
that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Listen, if, if you're the Messiah, if you're such a big shot, it, it's easy to make it in Galilee where, where it's kind of the country, all right? You got all the country bumpkins out here. It's easy to make it. But Jesus, if you really want to be a, a real Messiah, the, a true prophet, you got to go make it in the city. You got to go make it in Jerusalem is what they're telling him. Jesus, in Galilee, you're a big fish in a small pond. But, but go to Jerusalem where all the other big fishes are and, and we'll see about, about who you really are. That's what they're telling him to do. But then it, it, it says that in verse 5, the reason why they're doing this, the reason why they're, they're, they're chiding him this way, it says not even his brothers believed in him. Now, these are his earthly brothers. And we know that after Joseph and after Mary gave birth, Jesus born of the Virgin, born of the Virgin Mary, after Mary gave birth, that her and Joseph did become married and did have father children and mother children. And so Jesus had half brothers and half sisters. The Bible tells us that clearly. But here, it says that they don't even believe in him. Those who were closest to him did not believe in him. In Mark chapter 3, we see another interaction between Jesus and his family. Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. It says, Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. This great crowd, Jesus goes home, he goes home to Nazareth, he goes home to his hometown. There's all of this hubbub about him. The crowd presses in on him. And in verse 21, it says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's gotten too big for his britches. Jesus' family could not see him for who he was because he was Jesus. He was just part of the family. And, and here now all these people are following him and and, and it seems like he, he's kind of lost it. And so they went out to grab him. They went out to seize him. They went out to bring him home. Because he was out there in their minds making a fool of the family name. So his own brothers don't believe in him. Even those closest to him. But this did not change or dissuade anything as far as Jesus goes and as far as his mission goes. Because others believing in you and, and in your calling and in your dream that God has placed on you, it, it, it really is irrelevant. Because God is God. And if God has put a calling on your life, if God has put a vision in your heart, even those closest around you may, may not be able to see past who they think you should be. And so they were trying to put Jesus in a, a certain little box and Jesus didn't fit that box. We see Joseph's brothers try to do that with him as well. And I believe that God has put vision. I believe God has put, has caught, put callings on the people of this church. Visions to start ministries. Visions to start outreaches. Visions that will, will, will expand the kingdom of God here in Homa and beyond. And when you start talking about the vision that God's put in your heart... There may be people who don't believe in it. There may be people who want to say, yeah, but you used to this, and yeah, you used to that. And, 
And you cannot allow people and their opinions of you to be the determining factor on what God wants to do through your life. Listen, we all have a past, and guess what's in all of our past? Sin. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We're all disqualified from being used by God. But in Christ, we are a new creation. And God will use our past. He will use our pain. He will use what we have gone through, and he will take it, and he will redeem it. And he will use it for his own glory as we get about doing what God's called us to do. But it's not determined by what everybody thinks about us. It's determined by what God has called us to do and the vision that he's placed in our hearts. Not even his brothers, not even those closest to him believed in him. Listen, if if God's put a burning vision in your heart to, to do something for him, to do something for his kingdom, to serve others, to, to love others in the community. And you begin to share it with some people and they say, oh, that'll never work. Oh, you can't do that and blah, 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 blah. Listen, go, go get around a new group of people. Some people who will encourage you. Some people who will say, let's do it and we can do it together. And how can we help to make a difference? Listen, this world is passing away. The the people outside of these doors are lost. And we have to take the gospel to them. That's why I'm so excited about the backpacks and the haircuts and the youth retreats and all of the things that you guys are doing for the community. But there has to be more. And the body of Christ needs to be mobilized to take the gospel outside these doors. And so that God's people can come in, that the harvest can come in and be strengthened and hear the word and receive the word and and be trained and be equipped and to go out and to do it again. But we cannot be limited by what other people think about us. Amen. Number three perspective that we see, we see it in verse 7. Number 7, it says, in in, in verse 7, Jesus said this. He said, the world cannot hate you. Again, he's speaking about his unbelieving brothers. They, at that point, are still a part of the world. They're unbelievers. The world cannot hate you, but hates me because I testify testify about it that its works are evil. The third perspective we see is a world that hates Christ. A world that hates Christ and Can we admit and acknowledge that the world hates Christ? We live in a world that is not thrilled about Jesus being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We live in a world, we live in a culture today that is in active rebellion against Jesus Christ. We see it everywhere we go. You can hardly watch a television program. It doesn't matter what it is without seeing some sort of debauchery, some sort of sin, some sort of rebellion against God thrown in your face, paraded as as good, as as loving, as just, as, as wonderful. We live in a world that is in active rebellion against Christ and against his word. And Jesus says, the world will hate me 
because I testify that its works are evil. In John chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, Jesus says plainly and clearly that I have come into the world and I am the light and I expose what is in the darkness and the world doesn't want that. The world doesn't want to hear about its works being evil. The world doesn't want to hear about sin. The world wants to be left alone in darkness. And so because of that, the world hates Christ. Because Christ and his word make it plain, make it clear what is good and what is evil. There is no ambiguity in this book. It's even black and white, unless you have one of those red letter editions. But it's literally written in black and white. But we live in a world that wants to make everything gray. We live in a world that says everything is okay. And Jesus and his word says, no, it's not. There is good, there is evil. There is righteousness, there is unrighteousness. And it's abundantly clear. You know, Jesus, when he came, he said, don't think that I came to bring peace to, peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And God's word is that sword. It separates good from evil. It separates light and darkness. God's word even, even separates, sanctifies his people, his church from the world. The world hates Christ because its works are evil. That's the third perspective. The fourth perspective, maybe you came in here today with this perspective. We see this fourth perspective in verse 12. After Jesus uh, goes up to the feast, he goes there incognito. He doesn't reveal who he is at first. He, he just goes and he's part of the crowds. And it says in verse 12 that there was much muttering about him among the people. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of talk. And some said, he is a good man. He's a good man. He's a good teacher. This is probably where most people today would, would try to place Christ. They, they would try to put Jesus in this category of, yeah, he was a good man. He, he had some good teaching on, on morality. Yeah, loving your neighbor, that's a good thing. As long as you don't define what love is according to the Bible. You know, they, they like the, the, mir the miracles Jesus did. Yeah, feeding the poor, caring for others. Yeah, we, yeah Jesus was a good man. They, they, they try to sort of erase all of the claims of Christ that he makes about himself. They, they try to ignore the, the, the sharp statements that Jesus makes. He was a good man. Many people would place Christ in that place today. Maybe even many professing Christians would place him there too. It is the most patronizing of statements. Christ has not left that opinion uh, option open to us that he's only a good man. He is much more than a good man.
We see the fifth opinion again in verse 12. Some said he's a good man. Others said no. He's leading the people astray. They say Jesus is a false teacher. He's not the Messiah. He's not the truth. He's not the one who's come to set us free. He's leading the people down a false path. In Matthew's gospel, in one of the conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees, they say that Jesus is filled with demons, that he casts out demon spirits by the power of Satan. So there are those who, who believe that Jesus was a false teacher. The, the modern-day Orthodox Jews today would believe that about Jesus, that he was not the true Messiah, that he was a false Messiah, a false teacher leading people astray. Number six, we see in verse 13, it says, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. There were those who, who did believe in him, who did believe in Christ, but they were afraid about what other people thought about them. They were afraid about the Jews, they were afraid about the Pharisees that were opposing Christ, and so yet, though they believed in him, they didn't want anybody to know about it. Because the world hates Christ, they didn't want to be lumped in with, into the category of being hated by the world. They wanted to be accepted by the world. They thought that they could maintain their good standing with the world's way of thinking and also follow Jesus at the same time. And let me tell you, you can't. You can't. You cannot live in fear about what other people think about you. Like many, uh, like, like the people of, of Jesus' day who believed in him, yet they were afraid of the Jews so they would not speak of him openly. There are so many Christians today who want to be loved by the world, who want to be loved by the world that hates Christ, that they are afraid and they are ashamed to speak up for their faith in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if that is us here today, that's idolatry. That's us putting ourselves before our king. It's a self-worship that, that we want to be accepted by the world when we should live for the honor and the glory of Christ and Christ alone. If there's any hint of that in our hearts, it must be repented of. There is a price to pay for following Christ. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. The idea that, that following Christ requires nothing of us is not a biblical idea. Salvation is free. It is a free gift of God's grace. And hear me in this. We do not earn our salvation. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's it. It's all of grace. Salvation is all of grace. It's all the work of Christ on the cross. But now that we're saved, now that we're redeemed, now that we're filled with the Spirit of God, following Jesus, that'll cost us everything. He owns our life. So the idea that we will follow Christ and that there's not a price to pay, it is not a biblical idea. This is why Paul declares, and we read it in our scripture verse this morning, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel's for everybody. 
from every different walk of life, from every different background, wherever you came from, the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, it is for you. And that message is the power of God unto salvation. And what the church needs today is to be set free of the idolatry of self. Set free of, of wanting to be accepted by the world and instead to live for the glory of God so that we're no longer ashamed of the gospel. We're no longer ashamed to be named with Christ. But that we live out our faith in a very public way. Not in a private way where we come and huddle here on Sundays and go out as undercover Christians throughout the rest of the week. But that everybody in our life knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that we love Jesus and that we follow him. That we are Christian. There's no such thing as an undercover Christian. There's no such thing as a, a private faith. Our faith in Christ demands that, that we live out our faith publicly. The people that you know, your work, your coworkers, your friends, they shouldn't be shocked to find out that you're a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian? Should be abundantly obvious because we have the Spirit of God alive on the inside of us. Because we live out the life of Christ everywhere we go. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, that everyone who acknowledges me before man, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. That's a sobering thought. The words of our Lord should cause us to want to live the most public profession of faith, to live out our faith everywhere we go, everything we do, to be named with the name of Christ. So those are our six that we see here. And now as we move to the seventh, the seventh we don't see here in the text. In fact, we see it all throughout the Gospel of John. And the seventh is who Jesus said he was. And let me just tell you, this should be the only perspective that matters. It really doesn't matter what everybody else thinks about Jesus. The only thing that really matters is what he thinks about himself. Who was it that Jesus was? Who, who did he declare that he is? Well, in John's gospel, he declares over and over and over again with different word pictures with, with different ways of explaining the exact same thing. Jesus says that he is the bread of life who has come down from heaven. That his origins are not earthly, but his origins are heavenly. That he came from heaven to earth and that he brought the kingdom of God. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. He's saying that the world is in darkness but that he is the one who has brought the light. He is the one who reveals the truth. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Basically, if you want to be a part of God's flock, if you want to be a part of God's family, you have to come through me. That my sacrifice on the cross is the only way to be made right with God. I am the door of the sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. That he is the only one who will take responsibility for our sin and for our souls. And that he is not going to lose a one of his sheep. That's good news. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That he alone is the one who has defeated death. He alone is the one who offers life eternal through faith in his name. There is no other way to have eternal life except through the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's not another way to be made right with God. There's not a hundred ways to be made right with God. There's not two ways to be made right with God. There is one way, and Jesus said, I am the way. Amen. 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 If you came in here this morning burdened with sin, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way and the one who paid the price for your sin on the cross. And through faith in his work, your burden of sin is transferred to him and to his account. And in his stead, you are clothed in his righteousness So that when God sees every born-again believer, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees a saint clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the true vine. This, This picture of a vine is one that was developed throughout the Old Testament scriptures by the prophets. What Jesus is saying by declaring he's the true vine is that he is the ultimate fulfillment of what God is doing through all of human history. He is the one that, that, is, that God has been working towards bringing into the world. God's plan of redemption for all of human history is only found in Jesus Christ. Jesus made this incredible statement in John 8 before Abraham was, I am, which is very bad English, but it's very good theology. Because in that statement, Jesus is saying, I am the I am. I am the creator God. I am the the God that appeared to Moses in that burning bush. When they heard this, they, they began to want to stone him because Jesus is saying, I am God in the flesh. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one. There's many different perspectives on who Jesus is. We see it in our text. We see it in the world today. But again, I would submit to you that there's only one perspective that matters, and that is the perspective that Jesus had of himself. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the God of all creation. He is the God who spoke the worlds into existence. He is the one that the Bible declares that in him all things hold together. He is the one, the Bible says, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one who who Paul talks about in Philippians 2 that was enthroned in heaven. Who received the worship and the glory of the heavenly hosts. But did not consider that something to be grasped, something to be held on to. But this God of all creation, this holy God, the one that Isaiah saw high and exalted, high and lifted up, the one that the angels worshipped and cried out, holy, holy, holy. This God left heaven's throne and was born in that manger on that first 
Christmas morning. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He came from heaven to earth. He lived a life without sin, never once violating God's law, keeping it perfectly. Though all of us have fallen short and sinned against God, Jesus never once sinned. He never once told a lie. He never once stole. He never once looked at a woman with lustful intent in his heart. Jesus fulfilled God's law perfectly. And then this Jesus, God in the flesh, he takes his perfect life and he goes to the cross to lay it down willingly to exchange his life of righteousness for our life of sin and shame. To hang there on the tree and endure all of God's wrath against sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so because we have all sinned, we all deserve to die. Because we've all sinned, we all deserve to be judged by God. And Jesus came from heaven to earth to die our death that we deserved. To hang there with our sin laid upon him. So that his righteousness could be applied to our account. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is Jesus? He's the one who loves you more than you could ever even know. He's the one that left everything behind, not just to come to earth, but to suffer and die. And not to just die anyway, but to die the worst death of all. And not to just die the worst death of all, but to on the cross endure the wrath of God against sin. And not just any sin, but our sin, my sin, your sin. For the joy that was set before him. That he looked at the cross and he looked beyond the cross. And what he saw beyond the cross was his redeemed people set free of the power of the enemy. Set free of the power of sin. Forgiven of sin in God's family. Filled with God's spirit and transforming the world through the love of God. They took Jesus off that cross after he had died. They put him in a tomb. And three days later, that tomb was empty because Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive today. Amen. Amen. On that third day, Jesus rolled that stone away. He rose from the dead. He didn't come limping out of that grave. He rose in victory. He rose defeating Satan, defeating sin, defeating hell, defeating death. And he has ascended to the right hand of God where he rules and reigns over every kingdom, over every nation, over every principality, over every power, over every name that is named. And from heaven to earth, he bestows righteousness and forgiveness on all who turn to him in faith on all who look to him and look to the cross and say, I have made a mess, but he died for me. And if you, the Bible says, trust in his work, not your own works and your own righteousness, which are as filthy rags, but in what he did for you, your sins are forgiven 
and it's all of grace, unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We could work for the rest of our lives and never even get close to earning what Christ has done for us. And so because we could never earn it, God says, I give it away free to anybody who wants it. And so the door is open. The invitation is open. What do you believe about Jesus today? Who do you believe that Jesus is? This book, the Gospel of John, declares to us unequivocally who Jesus is. But what matters for us right here, right now, today, what matters for you, what do you believe? Who do you believe that Jesus is? I plead with you. If you have not put your faith in Christ, call out to him in faith today. He turns nobody away. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is no respecter of persons. The invitation is open for you today to come to Christ, to be forgiven, to be set free, to be made whole, to be given a new life, a new creation. Who do you believe that Jesus is? I invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to sing one more closing song, but before we sing together, before we worship together, I just invite us to pray. So, Father, we just thank you for your word that is so clear. Lord, there's no ounce of confusion in here about who your son Jesus is. Lord, we thank you for the redeeming work of the gospel, the gospel that is the power, your power unto salvation. Lord, I pray that even right now, those who may have had questions about who your son is, that through the power of your spirit, that all questioning would be removed. And Lord, that you would produce faith in our hearts to believe that you are the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, for those of us who may have been serving you for a really long time, Lord, that you would help us to not be afraid, that you would help us to not be ashamed, that you would help us to live boldly, to live faithfully, to, to live a Christian life in public display. Not that people would look at us and say, wow, aren't they wonderful, but that they, when they see us, that they would see our good deeds and that they would bring glory to you, that we would glorify you with our heart and with our life. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing here at Living Word Church. Lord, I pray that you would just bless Pastor Ben and Estelle and all of the leadership. Lord, for all of the outreaches that are coming up, the, the back-to-school outreaches. Lord, we pray for a harvest of souls. Lord, the Living Word Church would continue to be and even grow in being the light to this community that is in darkness. And we thank you that from this pulpit and from this church and through these members, your light every Sunday goes out into the community to bring transformation, restoration, healing, and hope that only comes through Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Pastor Matt, for that wonderful message.
Would you, would you join us for lunch? Let me thank God for the food. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you for your servant, Matt, who came and preached to us your word. And God, may all of us here today have that true perspective of who you claim to be and who you are. And I thank you for what you've done in every single life. And God, we thank you for the food that we're about to partake of. Lord, you are our source and our provision. And we thank you for taking care of us. So bless the food, bless the fellowship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. I love you. See you next week or in the foyer.